as we look through, especially uh, the Psalter, we see that there are, are many good things to pray for, aren't there? You can think of your own prayer life, and, and there are, are many wonderful things that you can br- bring before the Lord in praise or adoration and thanksgiving or even requests and supplications. And of course, we ought to be careful not to pit one prayer request against another or, or one prayer against another as if, if you aren't praying exactly what I'm praying, you must be wrong. And yet it is true sometimes that there are good things that we have examples of to pray for that perhaps we neglect to pray for. This can be sometimes because we are unaware that it is something we should pray for. Other times it's simply because we're lazy and we don't have the time per, to pray for this or that request. And sometimes, though, it's because it seems too good to pray for, that it would be presumptuous to, to pray for such a thing that, as if God would, would actually answer it. But that, of course, is where God's Word is so instructive. There are things we are commanded to pray for that we may not otherwise pray for, such as Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's something that we would not do unless, of course, God commanded us to do. But there are also examples and commands that teach us to pray for things that may seem too wonderful if it weren't right there. Like the Holy Spirit Himself being given to us. That's something we are to pray for. The Lord promises to do that to those who ask. We know we should pray for one another. We, we know we should pray for the church, but to what end? Well, to answer that question, I would like us to turn here to, to Psalm 115. Here we find many wonderful truths. We're going to consider those this evening. But we also see a, a prayer, particularly there in verses 14 and 15. What we see an example of, of a prayer surrounded by all of these wonderful truths And this can serve as a model for us to pray, as well as to learn from, that the Lord will abundantly bless His church. As we look at this psalm, we we don't have a, a heading at the top of it that explains when it was written. We're not told who it was written by. And it is hard to pinpoint when it was written because the circumstances that could have surrounded this were common. It seems that the people of God were experiencing some trial, some difficulty, to the point that, that, that people were, were saying, where is your God? They were experiencing a, a difficult time, and so it's hard to pinpoint which time this could have been. It seems there was a great trial when the people of God were being afflicted. The enemies of God's people were persecuting, or at least mocking the people of God, and their faith and in their faith in a God that they could not see. But this psalm it's been called a, a psalm of prayer and praise, composed in a time of pagan oppression. And that, of course, was the case at various times in the history of Israel, wasn't it? You think of just even those times when they had an, an ungodly king. You you could see and, and almost feel that the difficulty it would have been for a righteous person to live in the midst of the reign of a, an unrighteous king. But this was the case at various times in the history of Israel, and it is certainly the case today. But notice that though there were difficult times for the people of God, this psalm is not a despondent prayer. 
It's not a prayer of one who has been beaten down or is discouraged, though circumstances were grave. This psalm, though concerning persecution, it expresses a strong confidence in God. And this evening, what I want us to see from this psalm, and and really what my prayer is for you and what I hope your prayer is for one another, is that you would know, trust, and worship the God who is worthy of all glory and who promises to bless those who fear Him. What I want us to see tonight and what my prayer is for you is that you would know, trust, and worship the God who is worthy of all glory and who promises to bless those who fear Him. So the first thing that we see in the psalm is there in verse 1, and and that is that you would know the one who is worthy of all glory. The psalmist, he begins by saying, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. By this time in the history of God's people, the Lord had shown Himself to be worthy of all glory again and again and again according even to His steadfast love and His truth, His faithfulness. Just think of the history of God's people. Everything that had been done for God's people was for God's own glory. Think about their salvation from the Egyptians. Think of their wilderness wanderings and the way that the Lord preserved them, even in the midst of their discipline. He still preserved that generation that followed Think of their repeated deliverance by the judges. Think of their preservation under the kings. Think of their return, even moving past this psalm, their return from exile. And of course, ultimately think of the redemption of God's people from sin itself by the work of Christ. Think of the fact that God's people, as as a people, The church in the New Testament era, think of how it still continues today, even after numerous attempts to crush the church. All of these things are a result of God's steadfast love and His faithfulness, but all of them are are done not for the glory of ourselves, but to God's glory. That here the psalmist, he, he rightly begins and confesses that glory for all things is rightfully given to God and God alone, not to His people. You can think of the history of God's people, but you can think of your own life as well. How the Lord has been faithful. How the Lord has been true to His Word, His promises in His Word. How the Lord has been faithful to you, to your family, that that His steadfast love has been been there, dealing with you in in a loving way, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of trials, when He may humble us, He is still there working for our good, always working all things to your good and His glory, always dealing with His people in steadfast love and faithfulness. As one commentator puts it, all of the causes of God's dealing with His people are found in God Himself, in His mercy, His truth or faithfulness, His justice, His power, His unchangeableness. He did not look down 
and see our goodness, our loveliness, and therefore act. No, he looked down and he saw sinful men, sinful women, undeserving of any good thing, and he loved his people anyways. He is due all of the glory for the sake of his steadfast love and faithfulness. What we see here is a full recounting of all merit. The psalmist is rightly exclaiming, he's, 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 he's giving away with any claim to honor for anything that has ever been done or that might be done in the blessing and preservation of God's people. You think even of the, the mightiest of the kings of Israel, it was not because of their might or their wisdom or their skill that they preserved anyone. It was God and His faithfulness who uses instruments, but it is ultimately to God's glory, His work. He says, not to us, O Lord, but to You be the glory. Here we find a simple, humble statement that is so rich in meaning. At this, when you come to learn who God is, when you come to, to see what He has done, is the only right response. That all of the good that we receive is of pure grace to His own glory. And what we see there in verse 2 is the occasion for this response. Why does He begin this way? What is going on? Well, we see there that there was a challenge. Verse 2, why should the nation say, where is their God? Where is their God? It was a hard time, it seems. A time when even the presence, providence, and being of God was being questioned. You could say by human standards, things weren't looking great. It was a difficult time. And so the detractors of God's people were, were mocking them. Where's your God? I thought you served one who, who did all these things. Where is he? And the temptation may have been to refrain from trusting and glorifying God, but no, he says, to God be the glory. And so he reminds the people of God in verse 3 that God alone is due glory, and he is also still ruling. Look at verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. They ask, Where is your God? as if God were absent or had no existence, and yet all the while, God was not only there, but God was actually in glory, in heaven, doing all of His holy will, dwelling in His glorious and exalted dwelling place. And so the proper response to such mocking of where is your God is, our God, as one commentator puts it, our God is in the heavens, where your gods are not. They never were and never will be. Our God is in the heavens, where He rules all heavenly and earthly powers, where the malice and the rage of God's enemies can never reach Him. What we have here is very similar to to what we find in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we have that picture. In verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. There were the rulers of the earth. They were conspiring against the Lord and His anointed. And what does the Lord do? He's not trembling. He's not afraid of what they might come up with. He's laughing at them. He's laughing at them. To mock, to rage against the Lord is as idle as a dog barking at the moon. 
It's as, it's as foolish as a bunch of grasshoppers leading a rebellion against the burning sun. Or as my sons have tried to do in the past, it's as silly as trying to shoot the moon out of the sky with a Nerf gun. The Lord does whatever He pleases. There is no hope of success against leading a rebellion against such a one. The Lord does whatever He pleases, and no mere mortal will prevent Him from doing His holy will. He is supreme above all opposing powers. The Lord reigns upon a throne that is high and lifted up. It seems that the psalmist begins this psalm this way to remind the people of God that the trials that they were facing were not contrary to His will. These things were not taking God by surprise. They were not outside of His power, His, his control. No, the, the short and the vain triumph of His foes was, was not without His permission. He had not been dethroned. The, 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 the enemies of God had not been successful. No, they were not correct in saying that God wasn't there. No, God, as He always is, is on the throne worthy of glory. And he is still on the throne today, isn't he? But the same temptation is still there. The same temptation to, to doubt God's presence, the, the same temptation to, to listen to those who would mock the Lord and mock God's people. Where is your God? Why do you still believe a book that was written thousands of years ago? Where is your God? I don't see Him, so I'm not going to believe in Him. And the temptation to succumb to the mocking of God's enemies and despair is still there today, but also there is still the temptation to take glory for what the Lord has actually done and deserves all glory. That we should continually ask ourselves, will I give all glory to God? Can I, can I say these words there in verse 1 with, with sincerity? Does it actually reflect what my life is all about? Or do I secretly desire for glory to be attributed to me? We should continually ask ourselves, will I give all glory to God? Do you still, when it comes down to it, congratulate yourself perhaps when something good comes to the church or to your family or even to your business? Thank you, Lord, for seeing what I have known all along, how wonderful I am. We would probably never say those things out loud, but sometimes we act and, and think that way. Of course, we, as we will see in a moment, the, the Lord is in His graciousness. He, he does promise to bless those who fear Him. But let us never fall into the trap of mistaking God's gracious promises of reward for merit. No, the Lord does bless His people. He is is so gracious to do that, but it is not because we and ourselves are so wonderful that we deserve that blessing. Instead, let us seek to know this God who is worthy of all glory. Do you know Him? Do you desire to grow in your knowledge of Him? To grow in your love by seeing more and more of His glory? Well, this evening I pray that you would know the One who is worthy of all glory. The second thing we see from this psalm, and that my prayer is for you, is that you would flee from the foolishness of idols. That you would know the one true God, and then that you would flee from the foolishness of idols. Look at verse 4. 
Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. And here we begin to see this contrast, this contrast that is all throughout Scripture between the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, and idols. These ones who are are the result of, of human ingenuity, of human work. He begins this contrast between the one true God who dwells in glory and majesty and worthless idols. And these idols, though they may be made from silver and gold, are of no more value as gods than the pollen that so quickly collects on your cars. They are worthless as gods. Instead of being self-existent, like the one true God, or even of, of being alive, like men and angels, instead of making anything, they are themselves the works of men's hands. And so one commentator puts it this way, a man might as well expect help and salvation from an old shoe or from a tattered garment as from an image made of anything, however costly the material or curious the workmanship. We are very grateful and we're thankful for Mike and Jared's work in building a a pulpit for us. It is is truly wonderful. It's, It's a beautiful piece of work. But how foolish would it be for Mike and Jared to now bow down before this collection of wood and paint? They, of all people, know what what labor went into making this. It's the work of their own hands. It can do nothing for them. And yet we see time and again the foolishness of humanity and worshiping that not only which is, is powerless, but actually they themselves have created It is worthless. And so he explains in vivid detail how powerless these idols are. And he he goes through, yeah, you can make make an idol that has ears. You can make an idol that has a nose or eyes, but they don't hear. They don't see. They can't smell. They can't speak to you. They are powerless. Another vivid example is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 18 to 25, where where there Isaiah makes a similar point. These things are worthless. How vain is the help of a God who can neither speak, nor see, nor hear, nor smell, nor feel, nor walk. In fact, these gods, they can't even be upset when someone points those things out. When somebody makes fun of these gods, they they can't return with any sort of anger or malice. They're They're powerless. And of course, they can't defend their followers from harm either. But listen to what Scripture says about the one true God. How different is the Lord that we serve? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, we read these words, So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say the one who created these things. Psalm 94, Yet they say, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not ear? Here, he who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge. He's the one who sees all things. He's the one who hears all things. 
Psalm 11, the Lord is in His holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven, His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. Idolatry, we see, is foolish, especially when you compare it to the one true God who sees all things, who hears all things, who is a God. He's not even far off in that He he is there. Can anyone hide Himself in secret places? Shall I not see Him? You can't hide from God, as we read in Jeremiah 23. But idolatry is foolish, but it's also degrading. Look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. People who craft beautiful things, they, they show their ingenuity. They show that they are sensible, that they are skilled. But the one who then bows down to that thing and worships that created thing shows he is a fool and is as senseless as the idols themselves. But it's not just absurd, it's not just ridiculous, but its effects on those who practice it is degrading. We are made in the very image of God for the purpose of worshiping this one true God. And that is where we find true and, and lasting joy. That is where we find satisfaction, it's where we find peace and purpose. But those who replace the worship of the one true God with that of idols, whether literal statutes or or any other created thing, including themselves, find shame, worthlessness, despair, because a man is like the object he really worships. They have eyes and ears, but they do not hear the things pertaining to salvation, the things that are only are worth seeing. But like the images, these false worshipers shall be as powerless and as contemptible as the idols that they worship. However formidable now, even though they were at this time oppressing God's people, that that will be short-lived. They are truly powerless. There is not true hope of placing your trust in something you yourself have made. The end of that is only destruction. And so it's my prayer this evening that you would know the one true God who is worthy of all glory, but also that you would flee the foolishness of idols. Perhaps you've not made an idol in your home. Perhaps you've not put gold and silver together or wood and stone. But but are there things today that you are trusting in? Are there things that you're you're putting your your hopes and your, your confidence in? whether that be yourself, whether it be your spouse or your your friends or your, your job or whatever it may be, are there things apart from God that you are placing your hope, your trust in? These are idols. Things that if you were to really step back and think about, you would see the foolishness of trusting in them. Because all of creation is powerless to save you, to sustain you truly. But there is one who has the power and the will to help. And so the third thing that we see this evening is that you would trust the one who is able to help. Not only would you know God, yes, know Him as as your Savior, but that that you would trust in Him. And here we see the beginning of the the practical application of, of what the psalmist is contrasting. Here is God, here is idols. Now what does that mean for your life? Well, you should trust in this God. Idols are impotent, they're powerless, God is almighty, 
It is folly, uh, folly to fear idols or their servants. Instead, you are to trust in the Lord. That's what we see there in verses 9 through 11. He says it over and over just so that we don't forget it. O Israel, trust in the Lord, for He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He is their help, their shield, their protector, their provider. But He says, trust in Him. This is an imperative. It is a, a command. Do this. This trust, it expresses a reliance a confidence, a trust that He will indeed do these things. And as the heathen confide in their images and their idols, much more let the people of God trust and rely upon the one true God. We ought not to be put to shame in our devotion to the one true God as the heathen are to their false gods. But so often that is not the case. They are no help They're no shield to them, but He is our God. He is our help. He is almighty. He is wise. He is most merciful. None who trusted in Him have ever been confounded. This is to the high, the low, the rich, the poor, the young, the old. In verse 10, He he gives peculiar honor to the Levites, those who were called especially to be this, his ministers, his ambassadors. He, he makes a solemn call to them. But, but as we compare these verses, even that we see in the New Testament, it speaks of the church. We see that these continue to apply to us even still today. 1 Peter chapter 2, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. But also... I take verse 11 to go even further. He doesn't stop with the priests or the people of God in general, but makes a direct and solemn appeal to the godly, those who truly fear the Lord. There is here a call, a a call to live with sincerity. That a person may outwardly be of the tribe of Levi, they may outwardly be of the the house of Aaron, but, but do they truly fear The Lord. There is a call here to live with sincerity, not with hypocrisy. If you are here and you are a member of the church, whether as a covenant child or as a communicant member, then you are a part of the uh, covenant community of God. But there is also a call to truly, truly trust and fear the Lord with sincerity. To live, as it were, worthy of your profession with a sincere trust in the one who is able to help. But fourthly, we see in the psalm that there is this call also to believe. To believe His promise of blessing. Listen how clearly he says it there in verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. What a great assurance this is, isn't it? That the Lord is good, and He expresses that goodness in His covenant faithfulness, His his truthfulness to His people, and He will bless His people. He is mindful of us. 
He knows our needs. He will care for our needs. It implies all that we shall ever need will be provided. And notice again, to those who fear the Lord, but also he goes on, whether you are small or great, whether you have much or little, whether your body is is large or small, none who truly fear the Lord shall be neglected, however humble or elevated their condition, but each shall have a blessing. And he continues in verse 14. Now he turns now to that prayer. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. This here we have the psalmist looking forward to the future, a promise of generational faithfulness from God to those who serve Him, to those who fear Him. And he undergirds this with familiar language there in verse 15. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Who made heaven and earth. A special, I think, reference back to the blessing pronounced by Melchizedek on Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. What we see here is God's creative power. This creative power is the foundation of the confidence that His blessing will neither be small nor short. Can He not do it? Is God's power limited? No, He is able because He is the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. Heaven is His, and He has given the earth for mankind to take dominion. He will not let that fail. As you think of your own life, as you think of of your your own walk with those around you, anyone can make a promise. Anyone can make a a great promise even. But so often these are empty words, aren't they? So often it's an empty promise because the one promising, no matter how sincere they may be, the one promising is unable to fulfill His word. Things might come up. They might be hindered. But the one who has created all things and sustains all things, He is able to do all that He promises. Do you believe that this evening? Do you believe that God is mindful of you? That He does see your walk before Him? That He does see your plight in the world? Do you wrestle with with fear? With anxiousness? With doubt? If you trust in in Christ, if you fear the Lord, that that is, if you have a, a reverential love for Him, that we are to know and believe that He promises to bless you. Now this evening, to be clear, I'm not proclaiming a, a prosperity gospel. You, you may not get everything that you may wish or desire, but in fact you will get far more than you could ever have imagined to those who trust in Christ. You will receive the Lord Himself as your portion. The One who made you, the One who has redeemed you, will be your God forever. He will indeed watch over you. He will bring you all the way home to glory and you will dwell with Him before His glorious presence for all eternity. And it is my prayer that not only would God bless you, but that you would live in a humble expectation of that blessing. That you would would know that God is good. That you would not always have at the back of your mind this, this doubt. Will God really give those things which are necessary, which are good, 
No. To live with a humble expectation that God indeed will fulfill His Word. Again, these things not for our own glory, but for God's glory. In fact, as we interpret Scripture with Scripture and we think about the glory of God, part of the wonder, part of the the great joy that we have as God's people is taught to us by Christ Himself in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, it contains uh, this prayer of Christ and what he, He reveals to us marvelous things. We read that Jesus spoke these words and He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son also may glorify You as You have given Him authority over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as You have given Him. And this is eternal life that you may know that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What a wonderful picture of how the Son and the Father are seeking to glorify one another. That would be glorious in and of itself if Christ stopped there. But what we read at the end of Christ's prayer is, is too much almost to, to believe. What does he say in verse 22? And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that you may be made perfect and one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them and you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am, that you may behold my glory, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The, the wonder of these things is that Christ in his exaltation, he is glorious, but he is praying that the Father would cause his people to join in with him in that glory, that we would be with him forever. And we long for. And we are promised to see the glory of Christ, to participate in it even, because we are in Christ. And this blessing from the Lord, though it will be finally and fully realized in the future, we begin to see and enjoy even now. The Lord is mindful of us now, and as a loving Father, He loves to bless His children. These high and exalted spiritual blessings of participating even the glory of Christ, as as mysterious as that is for us, but also He blesses us with all that is needful in this life and in the life to come. He does not withhold any good thing from His children. The final thing that we see here in this psalm this evening, my prayer for you would be that you would continue to worship the Lord forever. That's what we see in verses 17 and 20. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Now, I'll admit verses 17 and 18, they've been taken in in a variety of ways. And we're not going to get into the the various options of how to interpret that. But this is is my understanding. First, in in verse 17, he speaks of the, the dead do not praise the Lord. What he's getting at there is that God will always have a people on the earth to worship Him. That the people of God are not going to be wiped out, and so there would be nobody on the earth to worship the Lord. 
No, God's praise on the earth, it's not heard from the lips of those who have died or gone into silence. The true Israel, the people of God, the church, it cannot, it will not go extinct upon the earth. For then the true praises of the Lord would fail among men. And He has determined that he will, that will never happen. And so verse 17, there's going to be a people of God on the earth until Christ returns. It will not be ever fully or finally destroyed. But then, second in verse 18, comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know that the Lord will raise up our bodies and we will worship the Lord forever. That we will be raised up in glory and we will indeed worship the Lord forever in our bodies. That what we do here today together and what, Lord willing, we will do together again next week we will do together for all eternity. We will be praising the Lord, blessing His name. And it is my desire that you would continue to worship the Lord with joy, with reverence for who He is, for what He has done, to praise Him because He is the the only one and true and living God, the the preserver of, of men and of angels, He in whom our breath is, in whom are all of our ways. Let us give praise to God, for He alone is worthy of all glory. His great work, His great love is preeminently seen, of course, in the person and the work of Christ who was given for us that we might be saved to the uttermost. So let us worship the Lord. Let us give Him that glory which is due to Him alone. Let us do these things, but also let us as a people pray earnestly. Let us as God's people, even as the psalmist here, let us take this as a prayer on our own lips. Let us pray as God's people for His blessing. We desire, we need the Lord to bless us in our individual walks with the Lord. We need the Lord to bless us as a congregation, to grow before Him. So let us pray that the Lord would indeed be faithful and bless us as His people. We just saw that He's promised to do it. We've seen that He's able to do it. And so let us pray that He will fulfill those things. Let us have a a humble confidence, a joyful expectation that God indeed is good to His people. And by God's grace through Christ, let us together continue to know, trust, and worship the God who is worthy of all glory and who promises to bless those who fear Him. Let us pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word that You give to us. We do thank You, Lord, for its wisdom. We thank You, Lord, for its revelation of Your character. We thank You, Lord, for its gracious promises. We thank You, Lord, for its wonderful pronouncement of who Christ is and what He has done. We we thank You for bringing us into the assembly of Your Son, that we are indeed Your people whom You care for whom you preserve, and whom you promise to bless. We pray that you would take these things, that you would bind them to our hearts, and that we would indeed live in light of them, that we would walk before you with a joy and an expectation of these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.